All right, everyone, welcome to the Toasty Kettle Podcast, where we help you connect with the past through food. My name is James, and I'm your host. Today is episode 63. Because Halloween is only a few days away, we're going to take a trip down memory lane on our way to the candy graveyard. Remember, if you like what you hear on today's episode, make sure you leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Now, before we make it to the candy graveyard, I want to talk a little bit about the history of Halloween. It's an interesting holiday that has evolved into a candy free-for-all. So how did we get here? How did we get to where we are today where the focus is on candy? The tradition of dressing up in costume and going door-to-door for food has its roots in many ancient cultures. The Greeks had a version of this behavior as well as the ancient Romans. For example, the Greek island of Rhodes had a custom where children would dress up as swallows. They would go door-to-door singing songs. And it was expected that when they would sing a song on a doorstep, that the owner would give them food for the performance. If they didn't give the children food, then the children would perform a trick on the poor homeowner. The trick took the form of mischief against the homeowner. It's unlikely that this custom from a remote Greek island spawned Halloween as we know it today. So what are some other things that could have contributed to that? Fast forward a bit to the Celts. There's actually a Celtic festival that takes place on October 31st through November 1st that seems a dead ringer for Halloween as we know it today. Samhain is a Celtic festival that celebrates the end of the harvest. It was believed that during this time, spirits and souls of the dead would wander through the world. They'd be appeased with offerings of food and drink from different homes. This belief is found through several European cultures. Many people believe that trick-or-treating evolved from this very custom. People began to dress up as the dead and went door-to-door to receive these offerings. Another tradition in England seems to have contributed further to modern-day trick-or-treating. Have you ever heard of soul cakes? <laughs> soul cakes. <laughs> this is a very Halloween-sounding morsel of food. Back in the Middle Ages, Christians would celebrate All Hallowtide. This took place October 31st through November 2nd. People would visit homes and ask for soul cakes. They would say they represented the dead and promised to pray for the souls of the relatives who had passed uh, for the homeowner. Soul cakes sound really creepy. However, I promise they're completely harmless. They're small cakes, usually filled with allspice, nutmeg, cinnamon, ginger, and other sweet spices. You'll also find raisins and currants uh, added to the mix inside. They're often topped with the mark of a cross before baking to signify that these were offerings to the poor. The act of going door to door hunting for soul cakes became known as souling. So they turned into a a verb. Soul cakes were often kept for luck and not eaten. In the 1800s, a lady reported that she had a soul cake that was over 100 years old. That's incredible. Let's talk about souling for a minute. Souling is a fusion of pagan and Christian rituals, and it was popular in England and spread to Portugal. 
there's actually a formal Portuguese colony in the Philippines that still practices souling to this day. The earliest record of souling is found in 1511. It was once a widespread tradition throughout England. By the end of the 1800s, only a few towns were still embracing this activity. In parts of England and Wales, souling involves a group of people who go door-to-door to sing a traditional request for apples, ale, and soul cakes. These songs were known as Solar's songs and had a somber, lamenting tone to them. So kind of creepy. Some towns fully embraced the practice of souling and would leave heaping piles of soul cakes out for people to take. As souling evolved, people began to dress in costumes or disguises, and they would carry lanterns and have bonfires while playing divination games. It sounds pretty dark, but seems to be a main contributor to our modern-day Halloween. So now that we know where the costumes came from, door-to-door, how did it evolve into trick-or-treating in America today? Because it's huge. Everyone does trick-or-treating in America, or a lot of people, most people. Get to that in a minute. Dressing in costumes became known as guising, and it spawned out of this souling activity in England. In 1911, we have the first written documentation of guising in North America. Ritual begging on Halloween also appears in 1915. The earliest documented record of the phrase trick or treat took place in 1927 in Blackie, Alberta in Canada. Shout out to my Canadian relatives. Now, the text is as follows. Halloween provided an opportunity for real strenuous fun. No real damage was done except to the temper of some who had to hunt for wagon wheels, gates, wagons, barrels, etc., much of which decorated the front street. The youthful tormentors were at the back door and front demanding edible plunder by the word trick or treat, to which the inmates gladly responded and sent the robbers away rejoicing. Now, postcards printed for Halloween in the early 1900s showed children, but no costumes and candy. Postcards showing children in costumes started showing up around the 1930s. Trick-or-treating really started to gain steam in the mid and late 1930s. Just as it was starting to gain steam and struggling to catch on, World War II was fully underway in the 40s. The practice of trick-or-treating took a hiatus due to sugar rationing until around 1947. This is when radio programs and children's magazines started pitching trick-or-treating extensively as an activity for kids to do. Now, I'm picturing this crazy image of in my mind, these first trick-or-treaters that are going out, these kids that heard on a radio program or read in a magazine article that they should be doing this, would knock on a door. And try and explain to confused adults that they need to give them a treat or candy or something. And uh, now some adults went along with it and others would write to local newspapers furious. They saw this as a form of extortion. I think that's being a little dramatic, but besides the point. There were even some kids who didn't want to be associated with the practice of of trick-or-treating. 
1948, the Madison Square Boys Club in New York City marched around with a banner that said, American boys don't beg. I guess the kids and the candy companies won out in the end. The practice is now widespread, and it's embraced by the majority of Americans. A survey done by the National Confectioners Association showed that in 2005, 80% of adults planned to give out candy to kids on Halloween. The same survey also showed that 93% of kids, teenagers, and young adults planned to go trick-or-treating or participate in other Halloween activities. And that's an overwhelming majority and major participation from people in America. It's crazy. So now that we've gone over the history of how we got to where we are today, let's talk a little bit about the candy graveyard. Now, this is what I'm calling those candy ideas that seemed to strike a chord with some when they first launched, then quickly became unpopular for whatever reason, and were discontinued. Now, some of these are still around today. Others, again, just quietly discontinued. I'm going to go into some of these ideas that just didn't last. So first up is Gator Gum. This was gum produced by Gatorade. Gatorade pushed the creativity envelope too far here. The gum was so tart that it actually hurt people's mouths. It was discontinued in 1989. There's still people on the internet today begging for this to make a revival. Uh, Next up is the Wonka Bar. In 1964, Roald Dahl wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Fans were blown away when the Wonka Bar became a reality. In 1976, Breaker Confections in Chicago launched their very own Wonka Bar. It was small graham cracker pieces dipped in chocolate. The brand was purchased by Nestle in 1988, and the chocolate bar was sold until 2010 here in the States. When Tim Burton's film came out in 2005, they actually packaged a Wonka bar with a gold ticket, and that ticket was worth ten grand, $10,000, if someone were to find it. The next one hurts a little. Butterfinger BBs were introduced in 1992. They had a great run before being discontinued in 2006. I'm not a huge fan of Butterfingers. However, the few times that I had the Butterfinger BBs, I really enjoyed them. However, they were reportedly really messy and because of a low melting point with the chocolate. This was a common theme among candy bars that were not popular didn't last they made a mess um and because of that they were pulled nestle introduced butterfinger minis in 2009 so i guess that's the replacement the wonder ball i still have the theme song for wonder ball stuck in my head this was advertised heavily during my cartoon binging sessions over summer vacations The Wonder Ball was a chocolate ball that contained a toy. Many parents claimed it was a choking hazard, and Nestle eventually caved. They pulled the product off of shelves for good in 1997. Ghost Dots. Here's a spooky-themed candy that debuted in 2006. These were your standard Dots flavors like orange, lime, lemon, cherry. However, they all had a pale green color. They almost glowed. 
you didn't know what flavor you were eating until you were, well, eating it. <laughs> this next one is a brilliant idea, and I want one so badly. I'm so annoyed they got discontinued. Uh, 7-Up Milk Chocolate Bar. Now, immediately when I say that, you think of 7-Up Soda, right? Well, apparently the rest of America did as well, and the American Bottling Company took issue with that. Uh, so the 7-Up Bar was produced by the Pearson Candy Company in 1951, and it had nothing to do with 7-Up Soda. It was a candy bar that was split into seven different squares, each square had a different flavored filling. You can imagine that Pearson quickly had a dispute about the name of the product with the American Bottling Company, and the product was eventually pulled from shelves in 1979. So it sounds amazing, though. Mint, nougat, butterscotch, fudge, coconut, buttercream, and caramel all were featured in their own square. I want this candy bar. Altoid Sours. These are a candy that I personally loved. They launched in 2004 and were pulled in 2010 due to low demand. I was probably the only one buying them near the end there. However, they have a very loyal fan club. Unopened containers of Altoid Sours still sell on eBay today for around $100. I wish I had stocked up. Hershey's Bar None. In 1986, Hershey's released this candy bar. It was made up of chocolate-covered wafers filled with chocolate cream and surrounded by crushed peanuts. They then covered the entire thing in more chocolate. This thing sounds intense. Hershey's had a huge hit on their hands. And in 1992, Hershey's decided to get fancy with it. They split the bar into two and added caramel to the recipe and they no longer had a hit on their hands. This was the nail in the coffin for the candy bar. People weren't excited about these changes, and the candy bar was pulled off of shelves in 1997. Dweebs! These are actually a real thing. <laughs> these were launched by the Willy Wonka Candy Company in the early 90s. They were softer than nerds. However, the concept was too similar to nerds to really take off. So that's hilarious. You have nerds and you have dweebs. Next up, you have the Powerhouse Bar. The Powerhouse Bar was a massive candy bar produced by Peter Paul. This was four ounces of chocolate, caramel, peanuts, and fudge. So to put that gigantic candy bar into perspective, four ounces, doesn't seem like a lot. Well, your standard full-size Snickers weighs 1.86 ounces. So it's double and then some. <laughs> The Reggie Bar. In 1976, baseball player Reggie Jackson famously said, if I played in New York, they'd name a candy bar for me. In 1978, Reggie suited up for the Yankees. The Standard Brands Company responded with the Reggie Bar. Jackson left the Yankees in 1981, and the Reggie Bar left shelves in 1982. Now, last but not least, I have come across some crazy food history doing this podcast. However, this one takes the cake or candy bar. In 1923, the Sperry Candy Company launched a new candy bar. They called it Chicken Dinner. Yes, you heard that. They called it Chicken Dinner. The candy bar contained absolutely no chicken. 
no dinner. This was, however, a tremendous bar for the industry. It was the first candy bar marketed as a nutritious and wholesome candy bar. It was packed full of nuts that were lightly sweetened. It was very successful and had a good run before being pulled in the 1960s. It made Time Magazine's sixth most influential candy bar of all time for paving the way for the power bar industry. Think Cliff Bars, Luna Bars, Protein Bars. All of these had their roots in the chicken dinner bar, marketing itself, positioning itself as something nutritious and wholesome. All right, I'm going to end today's show with some fun facts about Halloween. There is enough candy corn produced each year to circle the moon 21 times. Nine billion, with a B, pieces are produced each year. Nearly 78% of parents admit to sneaking candy from their kids' trick-or-treat hall. It's estimated that each child's bag of Halloween candy contains 4,800 calories, one and one-half cups of fat, and three cups of sugar. Reese's and Snickers consistently rank as the most popular candy. 70% of people say chocolate is their favorite Halloween treat. Americans buy 90 million pounds of chocolate the week of Halloween. So all in one week, 90 pounds of chocolate. That's not counting all the other items of Halloween candy that are being purchased. Happen in seven short days, the week of Halloween. One-fourth of all candy purchased in the U.S. is purchased for Halloween. Grubhub said that in 2018, pizza was the most popular Halloween food ordered on Halloween night. Hershey starts producing Halloween candy six months in advance of the big day. Americans spend on average $2.6 billion on candy for each Halloween. And last but not least, love it or hate it, we have another candy corn fun fact. Candy corn is the most divisive Halloween candy. 49% of Americans like it. 44% either find it gross or don't like it at all. All right, everyone. That's all I have for today's show. I hope you stay safe out there this Halloween. Again, if you like what you heard, make sure you leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Toasty Kettle. You can find show notes and recipes at ToastyKettle.com. Until next week.